Welcome back to Oral Max Facts. I'm your host, Maria McBarry, and this is our in-depth episode on computer-assisted surgery when it comes to orthognathic surgery. We're going to talk about the evidence behind computer-assisted surgery, the known and the unknown, and the area of the growth for the future research. To be specific, we're going to talk about how to run a computer-assisted surgery session, the next generation of technology, the pa- which is patient-specific plate and splintless surgeries, a rundown of a patient-specific plate surgery in operating room, and uh, in, the, in the middle of it all, we will review some of the questions that you guys have sent us and the evidence behind the computer-assisted surgery. And in today's episode, we are, have the privilege of having one of the leaders in computer-assisted maxillofacial surgery, Dr. Daniel Bookbinder. Dr. Bookbinder is the chief of oral and maxillofacial surgery at Mount Sinai, as well as a member of the board of trustees of AOCMF Foundations. We are very lucky to have you today, Dr. Bookbinder. Thanks for taking the time, because I know when you're not in the operating room teaching, you're uh, traveling around the world to give different lectures. Uh, Thank you, Miriam. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So last time, we kind of reviewed the computer-assisted surgeries, uh, overall technology of it, that its advantage over the traditional methods and not burning our fingertips. And we discussed the type of case that worth going through computer-assisted surgery, as well as the office setup, especially regarding the cone beam machine. So we kind of left off uh, last episode by turning all the data to our computer-assisted surgery authorized company. And now comes the fun part, actually, virtually planning that surgery that for an experienced surgeon takes about 20 to 30 minutes, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I think, uh, Miriam, we should also stress uh, once again the importance of the clinical exam. Uh, as well as uh, having gathering all the data and the cephalometric analysis before this planning session. This session is not meant to replace any of the above. I think what happens is that uh, you are planning on a 3D model with or without the soft tissues uh, at the same time. And as you're planning the, the, the uh, surgery, what you need to always have in mind is, you know, the lip-to-tooth ratio, the uh, midlines, uh, you know, uh, etc. the pitch, the roll, as we talked about, you know, if you have a, a, a cant or if you don't have a cant or if you, your midlines are off or not and what you need to do, because all of that's not going to be evident during your planning session. So, you know, let's start with the planning session. Mm-hmm. And basically what you do is uh, you, you're on a web conference with mm-hmm. the clinical engineer from the various companies that perform the service. And the idea here, the first thing that you want to do is you want to actually put the mid-sagittal plane because that's really of utmost importance. Mm -hmm. And then once you do that, and you could do that with various ways. I know in the past we've used gyroscopes and so on, but this is really now uh, up to a much simpler way of just finding the mid-sagittal plane and confirming with the clinical exam that you've done. And once you do that, then you have to look and make sure, you know, look at the occlusal plane and look at the uh, the cant if there's any cant. And the way you do that is you drop a perpendicular point from uh, the infraorbital a line that uh, that goes along the infraorbital rims. Mm-hmm. And then you try and figure out whether you have a cant and again confirm it with your clinical exam. Once uh, once you do that, then what you want to do is you want to fix the uh, the cant. 
and uh, then you want to fix the yaw secondarily as we fix the yaw uh, and 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 really the the pitch which is the occlusal plane and depending on what your your um, uh, you know what your planned outcome is if you want to flatten out the uh, the occlusal plane or not obviously that's going to affect the position of your mandible so what you want to do is you want to try and and uh, fix the cant and then uh, take care of the yaw and you can do that either by bodily movements and mm -hmm. or by doing it uh, via a rotation and if you do it via rotation you should always look at a submental vertex view of the uh, of the model without mm -hmm. the mandible in order to try and make sure that uh, you're keeping the arch in a symmetric uh, uh, fashion and you do that by just putting a line across um, the canines or the molars and making sure that you're keeping them at the same level so once you do that and then you know your planned movement before you start your session so you can advance the uh, maxilla you can impact the maxilla you can differentially impact the maxilla and uh, you place it into that final position and then finally um, when when you send the models to the uh, to the company you basically put the models into a final occlusion and what the engineer at this point will do is this position the uh, mandible to its final position to the occlusion you've set and based on that then the proximal segments uh, will have to be adjusted and you can see the areas of interference and or the areas uh, where you have gaps uh, and once you do that then basically the session is uh, is over you can ask the engineer to give you a soft tissue prediction mm -hmm. if you want um, just to give you an idea of what the profile will look like and then once you do that then the rest basically is uh, is uh, is working sort of in the background the engineer will refine the plan and then uh, design uh, the patient specific plates and or the splints and send you a report which you will have to go over very carefully and make sure that this is exactly what you had planned and once you do that uh, then you approve the plan and the plates and splints will go into production. Perfect. That was a very comprehensive overview. So we're going to start. You mentioned using the orbital rims as our uh, plane for comparing our cant. Sometimes the orbital rims aren't even. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, a lot of these patients that have significant uh, craniofacial anomalies will have like a hemifacial atrophy or hemifacial hypertrophy and the orbital rims will not be at the same level and then basically what you would have to do at that point is just take um, what you consider the normal side and then uh, average the abnormal side or you can even flip the normal side and have a mirror image and then uh, use that as your uh, as your line um, yeah, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Fortunately for us, most of the uh, procedures that we do, you know, the orbital rims tend to be symmetric. Okay. Okay, so one of our, uh, one of our listeners asked the question of how do you go about deciding, f uh, correcting your midline via dental correction or a skeletal correction? Like how would, when would you change the yaw, whereas when would you decide to kind of let the orthodontist do their trick? Well, I think, you know, I think you have to be reasonable when you're expecting the orthodontist to do his or her trick. Um, you know, sometimes when, when the case is, uh, is set up uh, by the orthodontist and there are no spaces uh, where they can actually shift the midline, trying to correct the midline orthodontically may be a very big task because you'd have to create the space in order to uh, move the teeth uh, to get the midline correctly. 
but like I said earlier I think one of the ways that you make that decision is by looking at that submental vertex view and then you can see on that whether there is an asymmetry of the arch mm -hmm. and certainly if there's an asymmetry of the arch then you can correct it via a rotation uh, and uh, if not then you could do it via bodily movement so unless there are spaces and it's fairly easy to fix that you know and you have enough uh, room to to have a good uh, post-op occlusion then I would say that uh, that we'd correct that surgically makes sense what if uh, you are sitting in your Webex uh, designing your splint or patient specific plate and you realize that the condyles are not in proper position well that's that's a big problem if you're planning on going splintless mm -hmm. Uh, if you're not going splintless, if you're going to use conventional plates for the mandibular surgery, wh whether it's a BSSO or an IVRO, uh, whether it's a sagittal split or a subcondylar osteotomy, uh, then it's not quite as important in terms of the position of the uh, of the you know the CR versus the CO, or if the position of the condyles are of the fossa, because your assistant decided to put a stick between the uh, maxillary <laughs> and mandibular teeth when they took the scan. Um, so, so, so really, the beauty of this uh, of of using patient-specific plate is the ability to position the maxilla in three dimension very precisely. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, and you know your final occlusion, basically, it just means that you have to manage the uh, uh, the proximal segments intraoperatively in the case of a sagittal split osteotomy to make sure that you're seating the condyles. Okay, that's good to know. But that, uh, that does highlight the point that when you are running a computer-assisted surgery, it's good to have a checklist in hand and do things in a very systematic fashion. And you want to make sure that you account for the condyle position. You want to look at the dental cast impression for any chipped teeth. You want to verify the cephalometric points on the scan and confirm the space between your roots in case you need to do segmental osteotomies in yeah, your maxilla. Yeah, I think this is, uh, this is very important to stress. You know, I stressed earlier on the clinical exam, but I think, as you said, Miriam, it's really super important to, be, to have a checklist. And the way that we uh, try to ensure that the positions, uh, that the condyles are positioned in the centric uh, or the CR position is that we actually take a bite registration uh, before we ask the patient to go into the uh, machine and we use that bite registration during the scan in order to try and ensure as much as possible that we have the patient into the CR position. Perfect. And I have actually heard Dr. Ellis use that technique too. <laughs> yeah. uh, so how does, how, how does the computer-assisted surgery work if the patient's really adamant that they want to use Invisalign? So, you know, at first uh, it was a uh, difficult uh, concept to grasp that you can use Invisalign and uh, do this uh, type of procedure because we all feel more comfortable uh, being able to tweak the occlusion mm -hmm. postoperatively using elastics and so on and trying to, um, to get the patients sort of into their new occlusion uh, by guiding them with elastics. But I think, you know, initially I was uh, one of the people that resisted that also and refused to do any surgery on patients who had Invisalign. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have to adapt to the, uh, to the environment, I guess. And, you know, there have been several um, uh, groups and, and several papers that have been published uh, describing the technique of using, uh, in, um, you know, the Invisalign aligners um, intraoperatively as your splints. So basically, looting the upper and lower aligners, final aligners, or pre-surgical aligners, 
um, on an articulator and then luting them with some uh, methyl metacrylate in order to make them into one. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we've used also, s in order to maintain the occlusion intraoperatively, then we've used uh, uh, some things like TADS or IMF screws in order to be able to place the patient into maxillary mandibular fixation that's tight uh, before placing the mandibular um, uh, internal fixation devices. So it's it's really no longer a problem, but it obviously it remains a problem in the post-operative period where you want to try and, and tweak the occlusion by uh, using up and down elastics, which you can't do uh, if you don't have, um, you know, conventional orthodontic appliances. It makes sense, but unfortunately a lot of patients that are older and they decide to go through with orthodontic surgery and are working and they kind of they kind of want to have that slick and clean look of Invisalign, especially if they have like our sleep, sleep apnea patients who have to go through um, bimaxillary advancement. So let's just move on to patient-specific plate, which is what we like to call a new conversion in technology, but has been pretty much streamlined in Europe uh, for a couple of years now. And the aim of patient-specific plate is to remove any additional devices that kind of guide us to position the maxilla, including the, the vertical dimension, which we typically use to control or, or measure using the intraoral lines or extraoral reference point or vertical positioning plates. Yeah, so Miriam, this is a very good point also. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges that uh, we've had in orthodontic surgery is positioning that maxilla in three dimension. And you mentioned some of the earlier techniques that we use external reference. Uh, you know, by putting pins in that nasion uh, or doing the internal reference marks. Uh, but nevertheless, these have been sort of not very precise, and there have been studies that have shown that they've been, um, you know, you can be almost off by a couple of millimeters when you do that very easily. Uh, I think the paradigm shift here that you have to have is that you have to trust the planning. Once you drill these predictive holes and once you use your, your plates and reduce all the interferences so all the li uh, holes line up, I think you just have to go with the plan. And it's something that we as surgeons, you know, still go there and look, oh yeah, does it look like it's in the midline? Do you think we got the, uh, the movement? You have to really trust your movement and go with the plan. I think that's the toughest uh, aspect of this procedure that surgeons have to wrap their heads around. I think. Is it jump? Is a jump. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big leap of faith, as yeah. you say. So you really need to trust. You know, it's it's not something that you can actually modify intraoperatively. Mm -hmm. You either do it as you plan it, or you have to abort completely and then go back uh, to using whatever you know backup uh, system that you had. And for the first two years, when we used the system, I always made sure that we did parallel planning in mm -hmm. a, in the conventional way with the. Uh, uh, with the uh, sort of resident-made splints and uh, and <laughs> and the internal external reference lines uh, points in order to to um, be able to feel confident or comfortable uh, making that uh, that leap into splintless and or you know patient-specific plates. And as you mentioned, the the literature actually does show that the splint uh, surgery using computer-assisted surgery is still not as accurate as we want. And they have been really trying to find other ways of giving us that uh, uh, accuracy. And they have tried many different things like occlusal-based positioning system. And a lot of them haven't been shown to improve accuracy until this patient-specific plate, which has some good evidence behind it now. 
Yeah, actually, if you look at the literature over the past 15, 20 years, you'll see, you know, there's been sort of a trend towards these, uh, you know, we're getting uh, sort of closer and closer to our, um, you know, our planned um, positioning of the maxilla and mandible. You know, first we did, uh, obviously, these articulators. Um, and then after the articulators, we started working with the computer-assisted surgery just for the planning, you know, dolphin, etc. And then we had an idea of what we wanted to do. And then we took that next step, which was having the CAD CAM produce the intermediate and final splints. And then finally, these uh, cutting guides and these patient-specific plates. And uh, if you look at the literature, you'll see that now we're in a sub-millimeter precision. And this is uh, via a number of studies that uh, were produced both in Europe and I'm happy to say that uh, we will be uh, we have submitted a paper uh, with our own results of the first 50 cases that we did and uh, and were able to also show a submillimeter precision in the positioning of the maxilla. Yeah, that's that's very exciting and kind of going back and highlighting the point that we've been mentioning this is this might be the third time but I think it really worth honing it uh, honing it down what is that honing it down is that when we have orth when we do orthognathic surgery and we down fracture the maxilla the maxillary segment could only rely on the mandible as a reference to adjust the maxillary segment to the new position so in order to guide the maxilla to the planned position the mandible carrying an intermittent surgical splint used to guide to the most superior and posterior position of the articular fossa by the operator's estimation. But the problem is there is no anatomical landmark or memory of masticatory muscle available at this point to kind of guide and confirm the location of the mandible. And we also know from different studies that there is a mean of 2.5 millimeter vertical drop of the condyle when the patients are anesthetized and are in the supine position, which is kind of the background need and uh, this push for a new technology to get the patients to that level of accuracy that we promised them in the pre-op uh, pre work. Yeah, this is, this is, you know, definitely, as we've been saying all along, has been uh, one of the areas, the biggest challenges that we face, because um, what happens, as you so correctly said, you know, we're not very sure about the position of the condyle. We do our very best to push the condyles back and uh, up and back. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you have, to, you know, a couple of people trying to do that and it's very easy to distract the head of the condyle by putting a little bit of force underneath the mandible in the chin area. So, you know, uh, all in all, you know, we weren't really um, delivering what we promised, as you said. And I think this is really the major advance is the ability to position the maxilla in three dimension and a sub-millimeter precision uh, has become, you know, the... Uh, the standard, really. It's, it's no longer the, the hope or the wish, but it's become the standard uh, in the surgeries that we produce. We still have a challenge with the mandible mm -hmm. for the very reasons that you mentioned. And some folks have uh, been using a completely splintless surgery. We have not uh, done that yet. And I think uh, this is the feeling of a large number of colleagues I've spoken to. You know, we're, we're still sort of trying to figure out how we're able to uh, to position the mandible either with better imaging or better intraoperative uh, navigation, if you want to call it, or maybe even augmented reality in the future. But uh, but this is something that uh, that we'll still have to work on. Yeah, exactly. As you mentioned, we you mentioned in our work hand 
a hands-on workshop that you typically don't use the guides for mandible and uh, and it's been a common common theme when we speak to different experts who use patient-specific plates. But the, the rundown of the surgery when we use this patient-specific plates are a little bit different. So initially, you have to put your cutting guide, you do your dissection, and you put your gutting guide, cutting guide uh, to orientate your bony osteotomy. And once you completed your bony osteotomy, you could even have templates that help you contour the bone and the area of interference. And after that, you put in this patient-specific plate based on the plan that you guys talked about in your uh, computer-assisted surgery session. And the plate has all the information, the amount that you're going to advance or the impact. It's all in it. And you put the plate on and you screw it in and you are done. You're done. But I, you brought up, the, you mentioned the two years. How long do you think uh, you had to operate before it actually improved your time in the OR? I think the time saved was almost immediate and uh, and the reason being is that you know there's th it takes the the idea of having this cutting guide and the ability to place predictive holes for the uh, for the patient specific plate has really saved us a lot of time for s for many reasons the cutting guide will will uh, gives you an idea of how much uh, bony interference you have to remove uh, that's number one and number two is uh, the idea that the uh, plate can only fit in one way where all the screws all 20 or so screws have to all line up really helps because uh, you're able to really make sure that you're 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 affecting your plan now um, over time uh, we have become a bit uh, even faster because we realize at first you know the biggest uh, shock actually was th the amount of uh, stripping that you have to do in order to get these uh, cutting guides uh, into place um, but you know now that we uh, you know after s a few cases we're able to figure out and now we know exactly how much stripping we have to do uh, beforehand now the downside of doing so much stripping and retraction is that uh, we found that we have a bit more temporary uh, paresthesias of the uh, or anesthesias uh, slash paresthesias of the infraorbital nerve which we had uh, less incidence before using these uh, patients uh, these cutting guides patient specific cutting guides and I think that's due to the fact that we have to do a lot more uh, subperiosteal dissection you know up to the body of the zygoma and up to the infraorbital rim so we're uh, you know probably putting a little bit more traction on the uh, on V2 that makes sense and uh, for for all of the what late adopters uh, out there just want to highlight a study from Dr. Ellis who looked at the accuracy of conventional model surgery and he had his fourth year OMS residents to cut 20 consecutive cases of bimaxillary surgery and none of these cases maxilla needed to be segmented and Dr. Ellis concluded that the maxillary model surgery performed in the classical manner is variable, frequently imprecise, and some instance introduces extreme errors. And, you know, we all know that gluing the segmented maxilla on a model surgery just doesn't look as accurate as it can be when you're looking at the CT scan and really planning it. But there are many studies out there that kind of highlight the accuracy of virtual surgical planning. 
The downside of these studies is that they have used different analyzing methods and sometimes they don't have a control group and that kind of eliminates our ability to do a good meta-analysis. But all of them nonetheless conclude that the accuracy of computer-assisted surgery when they, when they pose the pre-plan to the post-treatment plan of the, of the patients to be quite on point. And majority of those studies are coming out of Germany, and I want to point out for my nerds club out there to definitely check out Dr. Rina's studies on clinical accuracy of waferless maxillary positioning using customized surgical guide and patient-specific osteosynthesis in bimaxillary orthognathic surgery. This is a very fascinating read. I really enjoyed reading it. To our surprise, just so you, you don't think we have, we have made it all the way, Dr. Rina and his colleague looked at 22 consecutive patients and evaluated the accuracy of waferless surgery by fusing the preoperative planning and postoperative outcome using the CT scan evaluation. Surprisingly, they found that they had the greatest deviation in the anterior and posterior uh, positioning when it came to using vaporless surgery. And they, they don't really know why, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly that is an area of growth and we are constantly trying to perfect that anterior positioning uh, using different technology. But vaporless, nonetheless, has brought us the closest we have ever been to uh, to the level of accuracy that we are really hoping to achieve. And there have been other studies that highlight the time that has been saved. MGH had a recent study from it uh, that said that overall we save anywhere between 31% time reduction. They concluded they have at least 31% time reduction in using the waferless uh, waferless technology and Dr. Bookbinder, you from your extensive surgery can definitely attest to that as well. Yeah, this is this is definitely, I think, uh, even a conservative estimate. I would say that you can you can save between thirty and maybe even up to fifty percent of the time. Uh, you know, once you get it, uh, once you're over the learning curve, because uh, it really is a time saver and uh, and has worked very well, even in in a teaching environment. Yes. And what's on the horizon, Dr. Bookbinder? I, I know you mentioned here and there the, the idea of virtual augmentation. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, obviously, who knows, technology changes uh, so quickly that it's uh, very hard to keep up with. Uh, the idea here, I think we've, we've come uh, almost to sub-millimeter precision, which, I, which, is, uh, which is remarkable, you know, where, from where we started. You know, in navigation for you know intracranial surgeries and so on, they accept a two millimeter deviation, let's say, for a navigation system, as the standard. And here we've uh, gone to a sub millimeter uh, type of precision. But I think you know, nevertheless, I the the way that what we need to do is we need to be able to take the plan that we're doing, which is so, so precise, and bring it to the operating room. So we need to look at these intraoperative uh, methods of trying to, um, to improve our outcomes. And, you know, whether it comes through imaging, maybe, uh, you know, if, if it becomes easy enough to get some intra uh, intraoperative CT scanning where you're able, or some sort of imaging where you're able to verify uh, the, the positioning of your um, 
uh, of your segments so that may be one way and then of course you know navigation I think navigation is very tricky because uh, once you start segmenting uh, the maxilla or the mandible uh, from the, the cranial skeleton you have to re-register constantly so maybe there will be a system that will allow for this continuing re-registration automatically uh, and that may improve you know our positioning but I have to say that we've come a really long way and uh, you know I can't predict what the future holds but I think the present is uh, is not so bad it's is pretty fruitful right now <laughs> glad to I'm glad to be living in this era and not the era of model surgery I'm oh. biased <laughs> oh, absolutely as I mentioned during our, our previous uh, session that we had you know you're lucky that your fingertips and your fingerprints will be intact and will be spared from the sticky, the hot sticky wax. <laughs> yes, definitely. Dr. Bookbinder, thank you so much for your time. And this was a very in-depth conversation about computer-assisted surgery, how to think about it, and having a systematic approach of even running the session. I want to finish with the question that in the technology is shaping the future of the surgery. And how do you advise residents who want to contribute meaningfully to contribute in the innovation process that's uh, defining the borders of the surgery? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting and important question because, you know, oftentimes you see technology driving the procedure and not the other way around. And I think the way that you can involve, be involved as residents is really to look at your pain points during the surgery and to look at the areas that are challenging and really try and get technology to solve these problems and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, a, a great technology will come down and will be forced upon us and then we start looking for cases to fit the technology and not the other way around. I think it has to be sort of a, an organic grassroots type of approach where uh, now we know the areas that we still need to resolve or the areas of clinical challenge and if we could use that and leverage the technology that we know is out there to try and solve these problems I think that will be the best way we can advance uh, you know our surgical procedures that's true that's true well thank you very much Dr. Bookbinder that was very helpful <laughs> thank you and thank you for having me and I also wanted to thank you really for taking the time to actually have these sessions where we can uh, you know, expose other residents and or colleagues really to um, to clinical problems that we all face and hopefully maybe this will help a little bit in terms of trying to find solutions. So thank you. Thank you. Until next time. Bye.